we cry out to you this morning, desiring that you would have your way. You would have your way in our lives, in our church, in our world. Lord, we admit, we confess that we can't live without you. We don't know what true life is without you. We don't know what peace and rest are without you. And so this morning we humbly bow, we humbly submit. Lord, we so desperately long to see your will play out in our lives. But God, so many times we find a law within ourselves waging war against our own good desires. And so, God, this morning we pray that you would, by the power of your Spirit, use your word to conform us. Use your word to bring us in alignment to your will. God, would you powerfully transform our hearts as we hear what your son Jesus has to say and as we see the beauty and the wonder of what he's done for us, God, we pray that you would use it to transform our hearts. God, we want to know you. We want to know you. Our souls thirst for you. Our hearts hunger for you. So humbly now we ask that you would meet us. Satisfy our hearts with your presence. It's in Jesus' name that we worship and pray. Amen. Hey, as you're taking your seat... Uh, I want to ask you, if you have a Bible, to, to in, open it up to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. Um, as we've worked through the Sermon on the Mount, the last, I don't know, uh, two, two and a half months or so, uh, here's something that has become clear. It is absolutely impossible to simultaneously follow the way of Jesus and also follow the way of the world. The way of Jesus and the way of the world are contradictory. They stand opposed to one another. We cannot both follow in Jesus' way and also follow the world's way. Amen. A few years ago, uh, I had an important decision to make. And I, I, I like to make a habit when I make big, big decisions in my life of reaching out to people I trust and getting their wisdom, getting their counsel, getting their advice. And so I reached out to a bunch of people in my life. And lo and behold, half of the people that I talked to, they really strongly believe that I, could, I should do one thing. And the other half of the people really strongly believe that I should do the other thing. What a predicament. And yet, as we've been working through this Sermon on the Mount, that is exactly where we find ourselves. We have the world telling us to walk one way, and we have Jesus telling us to walk another way. They're contradictory. They can't both be the map of our life. And there might be no more area that is more antithetical between the way of Jesus and the way of this world than how we view ourselves. How we view ourselves. Jesus calls us to lay ourselves down for others. But this world, this world tells us to prioritize ourselves. This world tells us to push ourselves forward. This world tells us to hold ourselves in high esteem. This world tells us that the most important thing about us is for us to express ourselves. The way of Jesus and the way of the world, they go in opposite directions. And maybe no area is more antithetical than the way that Jesus tells us to view ourselves versus the way the world tells us to view ourselves. In the book Strange New World by Carl Truman, the modern vision of self is described this way. I just want to read a little excerpt from this book to you. Strange New World by Carl Truman. Self is described this way. Modern man seeks to be true to himself rather than conform thoughts, feelings, and actions to objective reality. Man's inner life itself 
becomes the source of truth. Each of us seeks to give expression to our individual inner lives rather than seeing ourselves as embedded in communities and bound by natural and supernatural laws. Now, here's the, here's the sentence I want us to hear more than any, other, any of the others. Authenticity to inner feelings rather than adherence to truth becomes the norm. When a, when a society prioritizes self as the highest value, then anything goes. But as Carl Truman works out in this book, he's very careful to remind us none of us are off the hook. Every single one of us in this room have jumped into the pool of the priority of self. Every single one of us have drunk deeply of the idea that the most important thing in the world is us. And so here's what we have to do. We have to hear what Jesus is saying on the one hand, and then we have to hear what the world is saying on the other hand, and here's what we have to ask ourselves. Do we think Jesus knows what he's talking about, or do we think that this world knows what it's talking about? I don't know about you, but I've asked myself this question many times. In my life, every time I've gone the way of the world, every time I've taken the way, the road, the path of the world, has it ever turned out good for me? And the resounding answer again and again and again is no. The way of the world leads to destruction, but the way of Jesus leads to life and to peace. So if you have your Bible there to Matthew chapter 7 this morning, we're going to be reading verses 1 through 12. Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 12. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and to the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks, him for, or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more? Will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask Him? So, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. This is the word of the Lord. So today, we're going to be looking at three aspects of self which Jesus radically contrasts with the way of the world. Jesus is going to be giving us resources to put to death the old self that we might walk in the newness of life. So three aspects of the self that we need to kill. First, this morning, we need to kill our self-righteousness. We need to kill our self-righteousness. Verse 1 very simply and succinctly begins Judge not. Now, as we're going to see in a moment, uh, Jesus is most certainly not telling us that what that means is that we should never assess anyone else's life. Uh, when Jesus says, judge not, that can't be what he means. And here's why. Why can't Jesus mean that when he says this? Well, because in verse 6, that's exactly what Jesus calls us to do. Let me, let me read verse 6 for you. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. So right after saying, judge not, Jesus tells us that we are supposed to assess some people as dogs and as pigs. So that can't be what Jesus means. 
Here's what he's saying in verse 6. There are some people who will waste your time and will squander the precious, deep truths of God. And so while we offer the gospel indiscriminately to everyone, we also need to learn when to step away from an argument. And we also need to learn when to create some space between us and argumentative people who will just attempt to waste our time. We step back, we pray, and we trust the Lord with some people. So here's what judge not cannot mean. It cannot mean that we never assess anyone else's life or character. It cannot mean that we never tell anyone that they are walking in sin. It cannot mean that everybody's life choices should be accepted, affirmed, and tolerated. That is not what Jesus means when he says judge not. So what does he mean when Jesus says judge not? He's teaching us that we ought not to judge others, and here's the key, self-righteously. To self-righteously judge means that we think that we are better than someone else because we are right and they are wrong. That's the key to what Jesus is saying, that we think that we're somehow better than someone else because we are right and they are wrong. Here's the reality. The reality is most of the time when we're judging somebody else, we're not actually judging them according to God's standard. We are judging them according to our own preferences. And even if we are utilizing God's standard for our judgment, most of the time we are way more harsh on other people than we would ever be on ourselves. So here's what Jesus does. Jesus gives us some resources to kill our self-righteousness. Verse 1, let's read the whole verse. Judge not, Jesus says, that you be not judged. Here's what Jesus is saying. He's wanting us to be careful. When we assess people, when we look around at everybody else's life, Jesus wants us to always remember, always have in our mind that there is a judge who sits in heaven. His name is God, and he sees everything we think, everything we say, and everything we do. And so as we're assessing everybody else, we have to remember that there is a God who is assessing us. Now, somebody here is going to say, wait a second, wait a second. I put my faith in Jesus, and that means I've passed out of judgment, right? Here's what we need to remember always from the Scriptures. While it is true that a person who places their faith in Jesus passes out of the final judgment, which determines a person's eternity, either in heaven or in hell, we all still, even Christians, will give an account for our life. Here's what Paul says in, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 13 to 15. Paul says, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives... He will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Guys, we will all have to give an account for our life. Every word spoken, every thought, and every self-righteous judgment, we will give an account to our Maker. So then in verse 2, Jesus presses us even further. In verse 2, Jesus says, For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Uh, our, our daughter, Layton, is eight months old. And in her short little eight-month-old life, she has had lots and lots and lots of weight checks. Now, here's the problem with the weight checks. All the weight checks haven't happened at the same place. And even sometimes when they do happen at the same place, the people there use a different scale. And that means sometimes every once in a while on her little chart, there's a little blip up or a blip down. And it has, it's not because she actually gained a bunch of weight overnight or actually lost a bunch of weight overnight. It's simply because the different scales are weighted differently. We have, we have a term in our, our culture for when someone cheats. When someone cheats, we say that they tipped the scales. It means that they somehow tampered with it, gave themselves an advantage over the other team or the other person. 
Here's what Jesus is saying to us. However far we tip the scales in our assessment and judgment of others, that is how far God will tip the scales when he assesses our life. We don't get to, to pull out one scale to put other people's lives on it and then put that away and then pull out an easier scale, a lighter scale for ourselves and then judge our own lives on it. That's, that's not how this works. Jesus is saying whatever scale we use to assess other people's lives, to judge other people's lives, that is the same scale that God is going to use to judge our lives. Now, Jesus is not done stepping on our toes, but before we move on to verses 3 and 4, let me just say this, just right off the bat. Here's what I am already hearing in what Jesus is saying. I cannot self-righteously judge a liar because I have been a liar. I cannot self-righteously judge a sexual sinner because I have been a sexual sinner. I cannot self-righteously judge a murderer because according to Jesus in chapter 5, I have wished that someone was dead and that makes me in God's eyes as good as a murderer. I can't ever think or act like I'm better than people because I've done the same things. Verses 3 and 4, Jesus continues. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do, do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye. Here, Jesus gives us one of the most powerful resources against our self-righteousness. And it is the reality of our own sinfulness. To even become a Christian, I have to admit my own sinfulness. To even become a Christian, I have to admit that I have rebelled against God, that I have put up a stiff arm to the truth found in His Word, that I have lived my life belittling His name. For me to even become a Christian, I have to hop over on God's side of the judgment bench and declare myself condemned. I have to look at my own life and assess it from God's perspective and say, based on what I've done in my life, what I deserve is death in hell for eternity. To even become a Christian, I have to join God in condemning myself. I don't know if you ever watch these... Um, you know, reality TV shows, I'm sure everybody's in here at some point made that mistake. But occasionally, Allie and I will be watching something and, you know, the people will start acting, you know, kind of nutty and, you know, ridiculous, whatever. And we'll, we'll look at each other and we'll, we'll ask, did they forget that they're being filmed? You know, and then sometimes at the end of the show or whatever, they'll bring the people on for a little interview and, and they'll actually turn the monitor around and they'll let them watch how they were acting, what they were saying, how they were treating other people. And not all the times, but a lot of times when the people see the way they acted, when they see the way they talk to other people, when they see the way they treat other people, they're, they're actually really ashamed. Well, here's what happens, guys. You and I, we, we have this nice rosy colored version of our life that we believe. But then God opens up his word and he turns the picture around and he shows us our life from his perspective. And it isn't pretty. He shows us that we have all broken every single one of his commandments a thousand times over. That according to him, from his perspective, we are by nature children of wrath. And so God turns the picture around. And, and let's just be honest. I think if we all were able to watch our lives the way we watch everybody else's lives, it would go a long way in killing our self-righteousness. 
It would go a long way in us feeling like we're better than other people. But thankfully, God gives us his word to show us, to convict us. So the Christian ought to be the least self-righteous person on the planet. Because to even become a Christian, we have to join God in condemning ourselves. But that's why, finally, in verse 5, Jesus exclaims this. Jesus says in verse 5, You hypocrite! First take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Uh, Here's what it feels like to me that Jesus is doing. You ever been watching somebody else do something? You know, they're, they're, they're supposed to be fixing something or putting something together, and the whole time you're just cringing inside. You're just, it's welling up in you. Why? Because you just know that you could be doing it better. So you finally work up a little courage and you say something about it, and they say, fine, why don't you give it a try? So confidence through the roof. You start going at it. And two minutes goes by, five minutes goes by, ten minutes goes by, you're starting to sweat, and your pride is shrinking. And then at some point you realize you you couldn't do it either. And you say, man, sorry, that that was harder than I thought. When Jesus tells us to take the log out of our own eye, he's pushing us towards something that is impossible. We can't take the log out of our own eye. The whole central truth of Christianity is that the only way the log comes out of our own eye was by a free gift of grace in the gospel. Jesus is pushing us towards something that we can't even do. So that when we finally admit that we don't have the ability to be righteous before God, we'll stop thinking that we're better than other people. That when we come face to face with the fact that whatever righteousness we do have is a gift, it finally kills our sense of self-righteousness. So let's just think about this a little bit more for a second. I want to think about the gospel because this is both really good news, but sometimes the good news has to pinch us. Sometimes the good news has to cut us. Here's the good news. The good news is that though none of us could ever have stood righteous before God in our own standing, that there's not one of us here who could have measured up and put on our nicest clothes and done our best and done all the right things. There's none of us who could have repented enough, cried enough tears. There's none of us who could have done anything to be right with God out of His own mercy, out of His own grace, out of of His own heart of kindness. He gives us a perfect righteousness by faith in His Son, Jesus Christ, who came, lived a perfect life, died for sinners, and was raised from the dead. That is really, really good news. That means that anyone here who is a Christian, your right standing before God is only the righteousness of Jesus. But furthermore, when you and I actually do walk in righteousness, when we actually do good things, when we actually perform good works, on top of having our gift righteousness from Jesus, any of those good things that we do come to us as a gift from the Holy Spirit. If we love God's law, if we're good to other people, if we love and worship God, if we do anything right, that did not originate in us. That came from the gift of God's Holy Spirit working inside of us. And so everything that we would even have a claim to feel self-righteous about has actually been given to us as a gift. There's no boasting in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. So Jesus says, hey, why don't you go take your own log out of your eye? (laughs) Good luck. No. No, only Jesus can take it out. Only Jesus can take it out. And then maybe, and then maybe once we've come to him, 
received His righteousness, been washed anew, then maybe we are ready as His servant to be an ambassador of His to help lovingly and gently help someone else overcome the sin in their life. Maybe then, once our righteousness has been killed. So here's what we shouldn't be surprised about. We shouldn't be surprised that if one of the most fundamental things about modern man is to prioritize self, that if that's sort of the defining characteristic of modern man, then we should not be surprised that self-righteousness is at an all-time high. We should not be surprised that everybody in our little world that we see all day long, everybody not only thinks they're right, but they think that they're better than other people because they're right. That the polarization, the the launching of grenades, guys, it's just one big expression of self-righteousness. Here's what Jesus is trying to show us in this moment. Everybody around us, and a lot of time us, think that everybody else is the problem. And Jesus is turning it around on us and he's saying, no, 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 no. You judge you first. You judge you first. Sadly, guys, sadly, the church, this church is supposed to be the one place in the world where there's no self-righteousness. The church is supposed to be the one place in the world where we've all, we've all found ourselves at the foot of the cross having nothing, knowing that we're empty, knowing that we deserve death and hell, and knowing that our right standing before God has come as a gift. We're, that's supposed to be the one place in the world, and yet so many times the church has been the place where self-righteousness has been at its worst. At its worst. We started this series in the Sermon on the Mount because we're longing, we're praying, we're hoping that God would make Palmetto Shores Church a city on a hill, that God would do what Jesus said in the beginning in chapter 5, that He would make us the light of the world. But the only way that's going to happen is if our self-righteousness gets killed. So Jesus is here to kill our self-righteousness. Secondly, this morning, secondly, we need to kill our self-sufficiency. We need to kill our self-sufficiency. Verse 7 says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. Uh, One of the things I've learned over the years is that prayer is not as obvious and easy as we all like to act. Uh, Even people that have been walking with God for a long time, even people that have been Christians for a long time, one of their biggest regrets is their lack of a consistent prayer life. And so we all need help. We need help from Jesus to take a step in our prayer life. And Jesus gives us, I think, these really three helpful images to understand what prayer is all about. Uh, first, Jesus just simply teaches us that prayer is a matter of asking our Father for things. We need something, we ask. Uh, and then he goes on to talk about seeking, right? I mean, you and I are great at seeking. We know how to find the best deals. We know how to get out and you know, find all the things that we need. I mean, it's something we're good at. Jesus just wants us to aim that seeking towards our Father. But then I love this last image. It's helpful. This knocking, this knocking. You know, to me, it's, it shows that it's not just, oh, I need something. It's, it's, it's not just, uh, I need God to provide for me. This knocking shows that I'm welcome. I'm invited. I can enter in. The Father doesn't need His space. He wants me to walk with Him. So, When we're living our lives and we're not asking God for things, what are we saying? Well, we're saying we don't need His help. Uh, When we're going about our lives and we're not seeking Him for the things that we need in our lives, what are we saying? We're saying, well, we think it's smarter to seek those things in other places. And what does it say when we're not knocking? We're not going every day and knocking on His door and spending that time with Him. Well, For me, what it means is I forget. This is what I forget. That knowing God, walking with Him, having a fellowship and a relationship with the Father is the most important thing in the world. So what does our prayerlessness betray? What does it show us about ourselves? Well, it shows us that we are too self-sufficient. Self-sufficiency simply means that we don't ask for help because we don't think we need help. We don't ask help for help because we don't think we need help. Um, I, I, I don't want to presume to know your life. Uh, but uh, let me just tell you how I am. 
I'm the kind of person that absolutely hates asking for help at the store. Uh, I will wander around aimlessly for 30, 45 minutes before I will ask for help. And then the first person I typically ask for help is my wife. I'll call her and I'll say, hey, uh, can you help me with find this thing? And, and she, you know what she'll always say? Why don't you ask someone? And I'll say, because I don't want to ask someone. I'm too prideful. I want to do it myself. I'm too self-sufficient. But sadly, so many times that's, that's how we treat God. You know, he's the one who, who actually has the most resources, the most wisdom, the most availability. And yet we go looking everywhere else first. We run and ask and Google and search and try. We go through every other option. And Jesus is showing us a better way. This self-sufficiency of ours is laughable. In John 15, 5, I mean, this is, this is, it doesn't get any stronger than this. In John 15, 5, Jesus says this, Apart from me, you can do nothing. Guys, our self-sufficiency, it's a joke. Who do we think we are? All right. So just like with self-righteousness, Jesus gives us the resources to kill our self-sufficiency. I want you to look there at verses 9 through 11. Verses 9 through 11. Jesus starts to reason with us as he always does. Jesus is so good to us. He starts to reason with us. He says, Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread... We'll give him a stone. Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a serpent. If you then, who are evil, by the way, don't let that pass by you. Jesus just nonchalantly called all of us evil. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Here's what Jesus knows. He knows that if you and I really, really, really deep down trusted the good-hearted, fatherly nature of God, we would more comfortably, more easily, more naturally depend upon Him. That one of the main reasons that we try it on our own, one of the main reasons that we go at life with such a self-sufficient attitude is that we actually deep down doubt that God is a good father. Uh, When I was in seminary, I worked for this pharmacy. And uh, my, jo- my main job at the pharmacy was to be a delivery driver. And I'm going to be honest, the first couple of weeks were just so awkward. Uh, these people didn't know me. I didn't know them. And house after house after house, I had to go up with this prescription in my hand and knock on the door, having no clue who's going to be on the other side and, and have some sort of interaction and transaction. And it, it, at first it was, it, was, it was weird. It was awkward. But this was the cool thing. As I went back to the same people's house time and time and time again, we actually started to form a relationship. And some of these people even got to the point where they were, they were ready for me to come. You know, they had a nice little spot on the couch with a little crackers and a drink, and they wanted me to sit down and hang out for a little while. You know, it's like the more, the more I knocked, the more I knocked and received a welcoming answer, the more I knocked and found out that these people wanted to get to know me, the more I knocked and found that there was, a, there was somebody good on the other side. It became easier and easier and easier to knock. It started becoming less, to feel less like a job, less like a duty, and more like a delight, more like something I enjoyed. Jesus is longing this morning for our hearts to become so enlarged with our view of God's fatherly kindness and goodness that prayer for us moves from just being this duty, just being this thing that we feel like we have to do, to being something that we might actually enjoy doing. For us to see that maybe actually connecting our heart to God the Father through prayer is what life is for. Uh, but here's an objective that I think we all have to deal with. Here's an objective that I think we all have to deal with. If Jesus is so clear that God is this good God who has a good heart, and Jesus is telling us that if we ask, we'll receive. If we uh, seek, we'll find. If we knock, it will be open to us. Verse 8 clearly says that. For everyone, he says, for everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds. The one who knocks, it will be open. Sometimes we wonder, is God keeping his promise? I feel like I'm asking, but it doesn't seem like I'm receiving. 
And for our, from our perspective, we might wonder, is this really something that I can trust God with? Well, I was thinking about it this week, and I thought, you know, Jesus says that a good father, a good father would never give his child a stone if they ask for bread. That, that, that a good father would never give his child a serpent if he asked for a fish. But what if sometimes what you and I are asking God for is a stone, but he gives us bread instead? What if sometimes what you and I are seeking God so hard for, requesting so hard for, knocking so hard for, is a serpent? But instead, God gives us a fish. Why? Because he is the father who knows what we need. He is the father who sees our life and understands what we truly need. We see an illustration of this in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. In fact, if you want to just go ahead and turn there, I think it would be helpful for you to see it because it's, it's so striking. It's so, it just jumps off the page what Paul is doing here, how he's helping us understand our objections when it comes to prayer. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. I'm just going to read verses 7 through 9. The Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians 12, 7 to 9. Paul says, So, to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations. In other words, Paul is saying, Hey, God gave me this amazing spiritual experience. I was able to go and see things that nobody else on the world, in the world has ever seen. And the temptation in that, the temptation of having the revelation, the temptation of seeing life from God's perspective, tempts me to be self-righteous. It tempts me to be conceited. So he continues... So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul is saying, I was, I was asking, I was seeking, I was knocking. God, I don't want this thorn in my flesh. I don't want this messenger from Satan to harass me. If I could get this out of my life, if I could get this really, really difficult thing out of my life, man, that would be great. But the key is in verse 7. To keep me from becoming conceited. God knew that what Paul needed was better than what Paul was asking for. Our Father is so good that He will never, under any circumstance, shortchange us. But He may give us better than what we would have thought to ask for. We may be praying hard for a stone, but our good Father knows that what we need is bread. We may be seeking hard after something in our life, and it doesn't feel like God's matching our request, but in every circumstance, this is the promise, He'll always give us better. It's hard to understand how a messenger from Satan to harass someone could be a good thing. But Paul says, no, no, I've come to see that was actually a gift. Man. So knowing the world in which we live, where from the moment we're born, everybody tells us that we can be whatever we want to be, that we have the resources inside of ourselves to just reach down and make something of our life, we should not be surprised that you and I are so prone to self-sufficiency. Not only do we have our own sinful hearts that pull away from God, but we are we are heading down the stream in a culture that's saying, yes, you can. And here Jesus is showing us a better way. He's saying, no, you can't. No, you can't. But there's a father 
And if you ask, you'll receive. If you seek, you will find. If you knock, it will be open to you. It's a better way. Finally today, finally this morning, Jesus is killing our self-righteousness. He's killing our self-sufficiency. But there's one more aspect of self to kill. Finally, finally, finally. We need to kill our self-centeredness. We need to kill our self-centeredness. Verse 12, the final verse we're going to cover today. Verse 12 of Matthew chapter 7 says, So, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Now, I don't know about you, but it's easy to hear this and just sort of write it off. Yeah, you know, yeah, I've heard that from since I was a kid. I get it. Thanks, Jesus. Woo, way to go. Golden rule, you know. It's easy to just write this off, but what if we didn't do that? You know, what if we actually looked in the mirror this morning and asked ourselves, why don't we actually live this way? And I think what we'll see looking us back in the mirror is that we are too self-centered. Guys, we rarely, rarely do for others what we wish they would do for us. Why? Because what we wish other people would do for us is serve us hand and foot. What we wish that other people would do for us is to prioritize us and to listen to all of our long stories and to care about our lives, to take interest in us, to bend over backwards, to do everything to help us, and to always, always, under every circumstance, forgive us. That's what we wish that other people would do for us. And so we rarely do that for others. Why? Because it would mean, it would mean that we would have to move ourselves out of the center of our lives. It would mean that we would have to take a back seat to the agenda of the project of project put myself first. And that's rarely what we want. What makes this uniquely Christian and not just some cliche bumper sticker, you know, playground, Billy and Johnny, we don't want them to punch each other, so we'll just tell them, hey, you know, be nice. No, what makes this uniquely Christian is that verse 12 starts with the word so. So. So means that whatever Jesus is about to say, it flows out of what he has said before. So whatever he's been saying from verses 1 through 11, take that and drive it into verse 12. So whatever this has meant, then this. And well, what has verses 1 through 11 been telling us? It's been telling us that you and I have to come face to face with our own sinfulness. That we have to come face to face with the fact that we have no righteousness of our own. That that we have to come face to face with the fact that what we deserve is death. And that we are, in other words, it's time to laugh at our own righteousness. It's time to just laugh at the idea that we could be better than other people. And then moving past that, Jesus is then saying, okay, now that you've admitted your sinfulness, now that you've condemned yourself, You've also met the good, kind heart of the Father that who constantly, daily, moment by moment gives you better than you deserve. Jesus is saying then, once self-righteousness has been put to death, once self-sufficiency has been put to death, then and only then can we do to other people in the ways that we wish that they would do to us. How, how, How do we put this in a sort of a summary statement? Jesus is saying that the gospel decenters us. When we see what God has done for us in Christ in sending his own son to live and die and rise in our place, it pushes us out of the center of our lives. Now, if we've truly found life in Jesus, it can't be any other way than that Jesus is at the center of our lives, than that Jesus is now the center of our lives universe. In 2018, a woman named Rosaria Butterfield, uh, Rosaria Butterfield published a book titled, The Gospel Comes with a House Key. The Gospel Comes with a House Key. Highly recommend that to you. Uh, In this book, she describes her own life of radical hospitality. Rosaria is a woman who regularly invites the most difficult people in her neighborhood and in our world into her home, into her life, to her dinner table, to use her uh, washer and dryer. She's constantly inviting difficult people into her family's 
home, and life. She's the kind of person that looks at a verse like Matthew 7, 12 and wants to take it seriously. And in the book, she unpacks what, what that life, kind of life looks like. I would recommend it to you. But for this morning, the question we have to ask is, how does she become that kind of a person? How did Rosaria Butterfield become a person who was no longer revolving around self? Uh, before she became a Christian, Rosaria, Rosaria Butterfield was a lesbian who was a tenured professor teaching women's studies at Syracuse University. Uh, she experienced a radical transformation through the gospel when a local pastor befriended her and invited her into his family's life and home. She says of her own conversion that when she became a Christian, it was a, in her own words, a cataclysmic fallout in which she lost everything but the dog, yet gained eternal life in Jesus Christ. Here's what you have to realize. Here's what you have to realize about somebody like Rosaria Butterfield. For her to come to faith in Jesus literally meant pouring gasoline all over her life and lighting a match to it. Everything about her world was totally flipped upside down by Jesus. How did that happen? God opened her heart to see the beauty of the gospel. That if Jesus is God, and Jesus had come to rescue her and had died in her place for her sins, then it demanded her whole life. It demanded that Jesus would now be the center. And as she goes on to say throughout the book, not only was she able, she was indebted now to do to others as this pastor and his family had done to her. And more importantly, to do to others as God in Christ had done to her. So let's just take this really literally for a minute. I just want to ask uh, this question. Uh, what are the things that you and I wish, that you and I wish that others would do to us? I want to give you a list, some, some things to think through. For thinking about how as we drink in what Jesus has done for us, how it might then transform what we do for others. So here's a few things. What, what are things we wish others would do to us? First, we wish that others would be patient with us. Secondly, we wish that others would listen to us with charity. What do I mean by that? I mean that when, when we talk and we explain ourselves that instead of hearing everything that's said in the worst possible light, that we hear everything that people are saying in the best possible light. Isn't that what we want others to do for us? Third, we wish that others would understand our difficult circumstances. That when we're going through something tough, when we, when we have been bogged down with life, that they would be able to put themselves in our shoes to understand where we're at. Fourth, we wish that others would forgive our mistakes. Fifth, we wish that others would speak well of us. Sixth, we wish that others would reprove us gently rather than harshly. So if they do have something to bring to us, if they do have something that they see in us, a speck that needs to be pulled out, that they would do it gently and, and lovingly and not harshly and angrily. Seven, we wish that others would respect us. And then eight, that includes that we wish that other people would respect the boundaries of our relationships. Nine, we wish that others would avoid robbing, cheating, or stealing from us pretty much under any circumstance. Ten, we wish that others would love us unconditionally. And then I just finally just want to turn it back on you. What, Eleven, what, what, what goes in the blank for you? What is it that you wish that others would do to you? With a heart transformed by the gospel, with a heart that understands 
what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Jesus says, so, 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 whatever you wish others would do to you, do that to them. I hope you've seen as we've, not only this morning, but if you've been tracking with us this whole Sermon on the Mount, guys, the way of Jesus and the way of the world are incompatible. They're contradictory. But the way of the world leads to destruction. The way of the world leads nowhere fast. But the way of Jesus, it's life. It's peace. It's a life with God the Father. And there's nothing, nothing, nothing better than that. Let's pray. Lord God, we confess to you this morning that it's hard for us to get honest with ourselves. It's hard for us to look in the mirror and see the ugliness, to see the selfishness. It's hard to see the, the tragedy of the ways that we try to live apart from you. And so right now, we just pray that you would wash over us with your mercy. You'd point our eyes back to our Savior and that in seeing him, it would transform us. God, we desperately long for this church to be a place where there is no self-righteousness because our hope is in the righteousness of Jesus. God, that this would be a place where there is no self-sufficiency because we have learned to depend upon your power. God, and where this church would be a place where there is no self-centeredness because we are all sold out for your glory, that you're at the center, that you're the one who we exalt, that we all fade away, slip away, fall away because we're so committed to lifting you high. God, would you work powerfully in our hearts? It's in Jesus' name that we worship and pray. Amen.